Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. We have reached yet the end of another week here on Political Rewind. It's Friday, April 16th. I'm glad you're all with us. I'm Bill Nygut. Before we uh, start the conversation and I introduce the panel for today, a couple quick notes. First, my thanks to Kevin Riley, who uh, uh, was terrific in stepping in to my shoes yesterday when I was off. And, you know, because we've been talking a lot about health and how we all need to take care of ourselves during the coronavirus uh, pandemic, I don't mind telling you that I missed yesterday because I was having one of the most important health screenings that anyone over age 50 can have. And I say it because I want you all to be aware of how important it is. I was having a colonoscopy. Colon cancer is the third largest uh, leading cause of death, uh, cancer death in the United States. Uh, There are fewer people dying of colon cancer because of screenings as well as better diet. So um, I hope all of you who have reached 50 or over are taking care of yourselves in the same way we need you to wear masks, social distance, stay healthy. Uh, This is another uh, important procedure. It ain't fun, but it's important. So, um, all right, Uh, let's talk about the conversation we're going to have today. You know, there's not a governor in the United States, whether she or he is a Democrat or a Republican who doesn't do everything in their power to cultivate a positive relationship with the business community. And that, of course, is true in Georgia as well. You go back to uh, Nathan Deal's tenure as governor, and uh, he really uh, started enhancing the relationships and and tried to uh, build Georgia as a state where business uh, <clears throat> businesses could relocate and uh, find a very positive environment in which to do their work. Governor Kemp has continued that. Um, Both Kemp and Deal love to talk about the magazines that named Georgia number one for business. That's interesting. One of our panelists today may have something to say about uh, uh, that ranking and the publications that have given it that. But nevertheless, uh, Georgia has gone out of its way to try to be a very, very positive place for business. And suddenly, suddenly, as a result of the new election law and some other trends that have developed over, say, the last four or five years, there's a tear in that partnership. And that's what we're going to talk about on the show today with a terrific panel, of the, the right panel to discuss this. Um, It's Friday, which means Patricia Murphy, the political reporter and the columnist now who writes Political Insider, appears on Wednesday and Sunday in your newspaper. And she also oversees, of course, the uh, political blog on AJC.com. Patricia, actually, I want to mention a quick story um, that really kind of plays into our conversation that I just saw when I woke up this morning uh, uh, that Greg Bluestein filed in in your paper. So Vernon Jones is going to run against Brian Kemp for governor. Yep. (laughs) Yes, he is. This is, talk about a roller coaster of emotions for Governor Brian Kemp. You know, he started the week with a standing ovation from the Cobb County Republicans, a victory lap for punishing woke corporations um, for pulling out uh, the Major League Baseball game right there in Cobb County and ends it with this, um, a challenge from Vernon Jones, a truly a darling of the Trump activists. I can't, he is always the second most famous person at any Trump rally that you go to. It's Donald Trump and Vernon Jones. Um, I will say, I think Vernon Jones is probably, uh, he may not be the governor's first choice of a challenger, but He's uh, certainly an imperfect vessel for uh, conservative Republicans who want to challenge Brian Kemp. So we'll see how this plays out. If we know anything, it's that it will not be boring. So, and well, as a as a journalist, well, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, 
I, as I said, there's a way in which that plays into at least a portion of the conversation we're going to have today. Um, so uh, we'll keep that in the back of our minds. We're also joined today for the first time, and I'm really thrilled to have Maria Supporter, support, Maria Supporter, who is the founder and editor of the Supporter Report. But Maria, it's a thrill to have you here because it is not an understatement to say that you are a legend in business journalism in Georgia. You've been doing this a very long time. No one is as plugged into the business community as you are and have been forever. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I've been waiting, been waiting for years. <laughs> okay. Uh, De Denton's, the world's largest law firm, is also in the house with us, represented by both Edward Lindsay, former state legislator from Atlanta, and Caesar Mitchell, former Atlanta City Council president, candidate for mayor uh, back uh, four plus years ago. Thank you both for uh, being here uh, today. Caesar, how are you? I'm wonderful. It's great to see everyone here this morning. And Edward, you doing? Edward, you told us you just got, uh, you're now fully vaccinated. I, I am. I, I I got out there early uh, at 7.30 this morning and got my second shot. I would also uh, like to second what you said about uh, the colonoscopy screenings. Don't let these kind of screenings fall by the wayside during this pandemic. I had one. I had my second one in my lifetime about two months ago, and it's very important. Hope everybody uh, heeds your, um, your call. Well, I appreciate your uh, uh, seconding that, actually. Okay, um, uh, Maria, let me start with you, if I may, and because I, I want to go back a little in history uh, to talk about the relationship between business and political leaders, particularly in Atlanta. You wrote a column um, for Supporter Report, and I was looking, the headline of it is, let's, Atlanta is, uh, what... I don't have that headline right in front of me. Do you remember what the headline of that piece said? No, oh, God. Uh, uh, let's see. Yes, it's uh, uh, Georgia benefits from the presence of enlightened Atlanta-based companies. Perfect. And, and thank you for finding that more quickly than I could. Mm -hmm. um, Marie, that's been the case in this city for many decades. Um, you cite the fact in that column that going back to the mid-1960s, um, the Coca-Cola company is an example, one of our most important businesses here, um, supported the civil rights movement. And that did not sit well with state leaders, but, but city leaders always protected Coca-Cola from the harsh criticism they'd received from, from the uh, uh, people in the legislature and, and the governor's office. I think, Maria, about the famous story of how people turned their backs on Martin Luther King Jr. after he won the Nobel Peace Prize, and there was a reluctance in the city to honor him by business leaders and others until um, the mayor of the city and um, Robert Woodruff at Coca-Cola came together and said, we have to do this. That was a great example of how political leaders and business worked together in those days. And Coca-Cola took it a step further. It said, uh, we as a company can have our headquarters anywhere, uh, but uh, you have to decide whether you want Coca-Cola to be headquartered in Atlanta, basically threatening um, the community to stand up and honor Dr. King. Um, and there was another case that I think is very important when Dr. King was assassinated. Coca-Cola let the um, city hall know that they would pay any overages for police um, because, you know, they were scared that riots would break out. And uh, Coca-Cola kind of gave them a blank check and say, make sure we have a safe city. And even though riots had broken out almost all over the country, uh, Atlanta, uh, the home of, of Martin Luther King, ended up having a very peaceful um, but somber uh, honor for for Dr. King and uh, 
also the, the funeral that happened here, eyes of the world were here. It could have been devastating had there been violence in the streets. And um, Coca-Cola was one of the reasons why that didn't happen. Edward? Yeah, I also recall after Andrew Young got elected mayor, he went to a business group and I believe he said something along the lines of, I can I can win an election without you, but I cannot govern without you. And I think that that is something that most political leaders recognize, uh, whether or not they get into office with the solid backing of the business community or not, uh, that uh, there needs to be a marriage between politics and business in order uh, for the uh, for the affairs of the of the state or community to to move forward. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I was just piggyback on on what has been said. You know, when I was on the Atlanta City Council, it it it, it was, you know, I you know, it was never said, but it was it was often known that uh, you know boosterism on the part of the business community was very important to the to the health and vitality of our city, and certainly. The decisions we made at City Hall were often influenced by the business community uh, to the extent that even sometimes you would think that Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines and Georgia Power were like the, the, the 17th council person, uh, and not in a negative way. Uh, it was always from a source of support. And there were times when uh, the relationship between these companies and the state legislature uh, was not was not particularly, what, particularly good, so to speak, and some of that had to do with even the relationship or the strong relationship that uh, the city enjoyed uh, with these corporations and, 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 and understanding their importance. I mean, this really goes back, and final point, this goes back to even before Dr. King and, and his winning of the Nobel Peace Prize, there was a time when the city of Atlanta couldn't function as a government uh, and organizations, uh, local businesses led by Coca-Cola and others stepped up to make sure that the city stayed uh, remained a viable uh, business and ongoing concern. Yes, it was a partnership between the Atlanta business community, the AU Center, uh, the historically black colleges, and it, and and the political leadership that really helped push the whole state forward. The, the, let's say state government was lagging behind. They were going, um, they had to go along kicking and screaming in a way, but it was because of the foresight of the business community, of the political leadership, and also of the, uh, the amazing uh, cluster of highly educated people, black and white, working together that really led the state forward. Uh, against its, um, you know, darker interests or worse interests in things. I think that what has been so jarring for many of us in Atlanta to watch this incredible fallout between the governor's office and Coke and Delta, um, to me, they they seemed less like hometown companies than ever before. Um, we knew that Delta and Coke were in the negotiations um, with the speaker and with the governor's office, um, and uh, everything seemed to be going well, and the bill was signed and nothing was said. And then about a week later, um, especially Coke came out and just ripped the legislation that had been passed, and there seemed to be just a big disconnect between the now multinational corporate leadership of Coke and um, what is has felt so much like a hometown company since the Candlers were, um, since the Candlers owned it, and then uh, since the Woodruff family has made such a huge contribution. Um, and I'd be so interested, Maria, to get your your thoughts on this. Do you think that's right? Do you think that at this point in the business cycle that Coke and Delta have just gotten so much bigger than Atlanta, and their concerns are so much bigger? Um, and do you think there are local leaders, local business leaders who will step into that role that, that can provide that leadership locally? Well, I have a different take on that. I think that both Coca-Cola and Delta folks were there involved in the legislation, and there were so many uh, more onerous uh, features that could have been put into the voting rights bill. And um, I think that they were fighting hard to make sure that the most onerous, like, abandoning, um, you know, uh, no excuse um, 
absentee voting and and some of the provisions that had been talked about, you know, eliminating Sunday voting, uh, early Sunday voting. So I think, you know, the business community, and this is the Metro Atlanta Chamber, the Georgia Chamber, they were trying to make what could have been a disastrous bill less bad. And so some may have felt, oh, okay, we got away with it. But then a lot of people, it passed so quickly, and the governor signed it so quickly, that it took a while for people to realize what were some of the elements of the bill that were really uh, going to restrict voting access. And, um, you know, the, the water, not being able to pass out water was kind of made, everybody made a fool of us. Um, Delta and Coca-Cola have been international companies for decades now. And uh Fortunately, I think those two have still remained very much engaged in what's going on in the city. I, I, I do think that historically it's been the privately held companies that have provided some foundation of real leadership. So it had been maybe uh, Beers Construction back in the day or Holder or some of the um, uh, Cox Enterprises uh, is another case. So, But, you know, the, I, I will – say that Delta and Coca-Cola have been among the most progressive companies and continue to be in our city. And it's really sad to see that the governor is going after two of the largest uh, employers and still claiming that Georgia is number one for business. So I, Caesar and Edward, I, want, I, know, I know you both want to get back in here. Um, Caesar, one of the things that's interesting about this is we know that there's been a traditional longstanding relationship, particularly between big business and the Republican Party, that operates on a national level in perhaps much stronger ways than it does even in the state of Georgia. Nevertheless, uh, Republicans have always been seen as the party uh, of business. Donald Trump's tax cuts. Uh, during his tenure, which was one of the biggest achievements he would say uh, he was able to make when he was in office, favored uh, big businesses over individuals. Um, and yet, this it, we're, we're seeing that businesses right now, and I'll let you and Edward characterize it in your own words, seem to be thinking more about their place in the world of of. Uh, Activi- the way in which activists are perceiving the companies than in the advantages they get by maintaining their, their relationships with uh, more conservative Republicans. Does that make sense? No, it makes plenty of sense. I think there are a couple of things. And, 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 and Edward would have a, a, a much uh, broader and, and, and even more specific view of this, having provided leadership at the state legislature. Uh, as a part of the Republican Party. But, you know, I think these companies understand that we're in an incredible moment right now that has has been spurred by all of what we've seen around social justice uh, and the killing of George Floyd and, and so many other criminal justice issues that we're facing. COVID and the economy uh, has really put uh, everyone on high alert, so to speak. Everyone's hyper, hypersensitive and aware of some of the issues that maybe – Two years ago, you could just ignore and assume that they either didn't exist or would just, you know, maybe go away if you were aware of them. And so, and so with that being said, you've also got uh, an environment of political flux where you've got the state of Georgia that's becoming more and more uh, competitive as it relates to party politics. You've got a new administration of Democrats um, uh, in the White House. And so I think corporations are being responsive to, to that and, and trying to follow the trend. But one last thing I'll say, and this goes back to uh, the question that Patricia asked of Maria, is, you know, for, for companies like Coca-Cola and Delta and maybe even the Atlanta Braves to some degree, uh, their brands are much broader uh, than the city of Atlanta and even Georgia. And, in fact, uh, when they go around the world, they understand and know they're carrying not only their banner, but they're also carrying the banner uh, of uh, the United States and Georgia and Atlanta. Uh, and I think that's something that they're particularly um, uh, sensitive to and candidly certainly take a lot of pride in and want to and feel you know, very much a stakeholder in terms of the affairs of our state because they know they do carry that banner. And to benefit 
uh, an honor, but it's also a burden. I think that's why you see some level of activism as it relates to this particular bill on their part. Well, while I acknowledge the the, the public dispute uh, that's taking place here regarding this particular issue, I would still equate uh, the difference between the business community and and some of Georgia's Republican political leaders as a argument, as a spousal argument, a marital argument. Uh, If you look at at the totality of what took place during the General Assembly, actually the business community engagement on a number of issues uh, bear, bore uh, very strong fruit. Uh, we passed a uh, an important uh, series of bills that will improve the infrastructure, uh, particularly the moving of freight from the Georgia port uh, to, uh, to other destinations. We improved uh, for the business community uh, bills dealing with COVID uh, potential tort liability criminal justice reform, which was something that was pushed hard by the business community, also passed this session, as did a a curtailing of citizens' arrest and some other matters. Uh, There was also some very important bills dealing with tax policies that were passed that that the business community supported as well. So while this is a a very big disagreement uh, between, for instance, the governor and and Koch and Delta on, on the issue of the election bill, if you start looking at the totality of what the General Assembly did and what the governor was supporting, I think the business community came out looking pretty good uh, in the session and, and also a lot of what it wanted from Republican leadership they got. So um, it, it, it'll be seen whether or not this is some type of something greater than what I've just finished describing uh, in terms of whether or not there's an actual divorce or whether or not this is simply a, a, a disagreement on one bill. I, I, I recall more than once in the General Assembly when I uh, crossed the line of my party, having members of, of my party and slap me on the back and say, Edward, that was just one vote. Let's move on. And that oftentimes happens uh, between even close allies. You don't always agree. Yes, but Patricia, this does seem to be a moment, uh, an inflection point that could lead to a realignment. We'll see. And here's why I say that. I was a little bit shocked when, especially after MLB canceled the All-Star game and, and Brian Kemp held that very uh, uh, quickly uh, uh, cobbled together news conference the next day, surrounded by supporters of his, so it looked like a campaign event, clearly. Um, I was shocked at the harshness of the rhetoric. It was the kind of rhetoric that we're used to, Democrats and more often these days, Republicans throwing at their political opponents than at businesses like MLB, after all, is a very big business. And so the escalating rhetoric that seems to no longer differentiate between whether you're attacking a political opponent or a business, which is, in fact, you know, an important part of your community, struck me as an escalation that does suggest some possibility of a realignment. Well, you know, the the real question I think Ed raises one possibility, was this all political theater or is this a real fissure between the two groups? Um, I think Republicans have been struggling under the leadership of Donald Trump between this populist message and his capitalist instincts. There's that tension between populism and capitalism. And can you keep them both happy at the same time? Um, I think somebody like Ronald Reagan really combined the two really beautifully for Republicans to feel like they could be for the big guys and the little guys at the same time. But Trump really leans into that divide. And we saw um, Brian Kemp lean into that divide almost to reach out to those Trump voters to say, I'm going to stand up for you against woke coke and cancel culture, and um, I'm not. We're not going to. We're not going to get walked all over by the by the um, business community anymore, um, which is ridiculous. <laughs> because as to Ed's point, the Georgia legislature um, was a was a basically a three ring circus full of goodies for the business community, and this last flourish was totally at odds with that, but it works for Kemp on both sides right now. The question is, will the business community go along for the ride? Are they willing to get their finger poked in their, you know, his finger poked in their eye to to get tax breaks, 
to get the ports deepened, to get everything they ask for and generally get at the end of the day from, from the Republican Party here in the state. I'm not a political, yeah, I'm not but, a political reporter, but I, it's just amazing to watch how Kemp is trying to appease or gain favor with uh, former President Trump, even though Trump has done nothing but uh, really criticize and try and throw, uh, you know, Governor Kemp under the bus uh, just for, for, for months and months now. So that's a little bit surprising. The other thing I just wanted to mention is the relationship between business and uh, state government predates uh, the close relationship predates the Republican Party for sure. Uh, back during Jimmy Carter was very pro-business, uh, bringing international Japanese businesses here. Uh, Governor Busby, uh, Lieutenant Governor, and then later Governor Zell Miller, and uh, you know that there were just some really very um, strong pro-business Democratic leadership uh, going back for years. And I think everybody's always wanted to say, "Hey, we're a good state for business." And you know, historically, we have them. Edward, uh, we got to get to a break. Yeah. But before we do, I think the, the question I'd love to ask you, and then we can continue the conversation on the other side of the break, is, is it, are we looking it, on the business side of this? It appears, you know, I don't think anyone is naive enough to believe that big business is making decisions right now solely on moral and ethical grounds. They also are, after all, big businesses, and the bottom line matters. So I wonder, is there a possible calculation here that the Trump populism, which has perpetuated things like this election law that some people feel is based on the big lie, um, that those people who support that uh, philosophy, the Trump philosophy, are not the consumers uh, that the folks on the other side are. The primarily, in many cases, you know, white professional families who have money to spend, disposable income. And I wonder to what extent, and there, I'm not the only one thinking about this, this has been written about pretty extensively, businesses making a, a calculation based in part on that very thing, more customers on the social justice side than on the populist side. Well, uh, to sort of build on your on your question and your point, uh, if you look at the the election in 2020 and and Trump's support among uh, those people that you just mentioned versus, for instance, eight years earlier uh, when Romney was on the on the ticket, uh, I went back and I took a look at various precincts and in. What historically conservative upper middle class uh, precincts, and Trump on average lost about 20 percentage points <laughs> across the board throughout the suburbs. And I looked at at Buckhead, Sandy Springs, Roswell, East Cobb, Gwinnett, DeKalb, at various precincts, and it was consistently somewhere between 17 to 23 percent drop in the support. So. That is a group, I'll tell you right now, that Republicans need to get back into their camp if they're going to continue to be successful. I know you've got to get to a break, but I want to leave one last very important point that Patricia raised. It's, you know, between Reagan and Trump is the difference between the politics of addition and multiplication versus the politics of division and subtraction. And I'm, I'm very much in that GOP category with Reagan and, and the politics of multiplication and addition. All right. Edward Lindsay gets the final word in the first segment of today's Political Rewind. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. The AJC political columnist, Patricia Murphy, Supporta Report Editor, Maria Saporta, Caesar Mitchell, former city council of Atlanta president, and Edward Lindsay, uh, former state rep 
from Atlanta. I want to turn to the political side of this equation. Before I do, Patricia, I do want to point out, in doing some research for today's show, I, I found an article from 2017 in The Week by um, a writer named Matthew Walther, and he has an important quote. He says, we should not be looking to corporate America for moral instruction or making exemplars of its leaders or heaping approbation upon their bland, cynical, consultant-designed utterances. Ooh, boy, talk about cynical. And he uses Tim Cook as an example. He says, Tim Cook tells us he's against racism. I believe it. Good for him. And then he goes on to point out that Apple has built its empire on the backs of laborers in China who are living in horrible conditions, um, ruled by in a country ruled by tyrants, and I just think it's interesting to. And I'm not suggesting, by the way, that the corporate. I mean, certainly Delta and Coca-Cola have their issues, but I'm not suggesting they're in that category. But just in the general conversation about the businesses who are suddenly aligning on the social justice side of things, we should be careful in assuming their intentions are necessarily as good as they would like us to believe. Well, I think it really depends on uh, the company and the leader. I think some of these uh, CEOs are uh, speaking from very personal places and bringing their companies along with them. I think some of the other companies are going along with it because there's 100 CEOs on the letter and won't it look bad if I'm not on that letter. Um, I think that as, especially as Congress has gotten more and more Um, bogged down and calcified and almost unable to pass meaningful legislation, we've seen a real trend of corporate America stepping forward to really legislate and almost moralize in some cases and take up the mantle that um, the federal government really used to play in some cases. And I would point to climate change. It really has been Um, In some cases, a lot less about um, the government creating regulations, especially when regulations are passed and repealed and passed and repealed. And it's been up to the car companies to decide we're going electric. This is what we're doing and you're coming with us. Um, We've seen it in a number of different areas. Um, Amazon has its own minimum wage because the federal government can't get a minimum wage built together. Um, It's become so hard to get these large national decisions made that companies are um, doing it, I think, both for for whatever reasons their leaders have to do it, but then also to attract a workforce and also to attract consumers that increasingly, as younger consumers come along, the values of the companies they patronize are important to them. And I think companies understand that and know that. And that's why you have a company like Patagonia based in um, San Francisco coming in to give a million dollars to Georgia get out the vote efforts and voting rights efforts because that sends a message to their consumers across the globe that this is important to them. And so I think we're going to see more and more corporate leaders taking leadership roles in social issues and things that used to be government decisions, um, especially as the government is less and less able to do that on its own. Uh, and yeah, Maria, I get you in here because, you know, first of all, I want to say, I think if you look at uh, the corporations in Atlanta, you'd have to point to an Ed Bastian at Delta Airlines as having taken very responsible stance, certainly in how he's led the airline through the COVID crisis. Um, and 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 so as, as uh, I think Patricia points out, this is a case-by-case uh, basis, isn't it? But you also make a very strong point, which this isn't just about c- customers, consumers. This is about how companies have to look at their own workforces and attracting uh, people who want to be part of their businesses. Yeah, and everybody's in a race <laughs> or competition for talent. And uh, so your image, uh, especially among uh, the younger tech-savvy tech workforce is really important. And that's, in many ways, what's driving the, the companies to act the way they are. There was also January 6th. And I think January 6th was an awakening for companies. They were like, oh, my God, this is this has definitely gone a step too far. And you started hearing companies questioning whether they should be getting, giving political contributions 
to legislators, uh, especially those who had been supporting legislation that was viewed perhaps as being against uh, uh, voting rights or or civil rights or, uh, you know, those that would really backfire among that constituency of uh, young millennials or, um, you know, Generation Xers. These are people they really want to attract to come and join their companies. Edward, could could I move with you to the other side of this equation, which is looking at the political uh, Mm -hmm. uh, issues that are raised by the election bill and by the way in which Republicans are speaking out against the companies? Um, By the way, we should also point out during this part of the conversation that progressive groups, voting rights groups, are putting pressure on these companies, too, to do even more than they're doing now, and we'll, we'll do that as well. But when I said at the beginning of the show that Vernon Jones' decision to challenge Brian Kemp in a Republican primary for governor really plays into this conversation, I think this is the moment to discuss that. Um, Brian Kemp, no question, at war with Donald, or Donald Trump at war with Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp's trying to be as uh, cordial to the uh, former president as possible. This has been a potential lifeline for Brian Kemp by uh, uh, going to battle against companies that have accused his Republicans of, of, of a voting law that suppresses voter rights. This could be a way back after the anger over his refusal to go along with Trump on the fraudulent Georgia election. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of people forget uh, when they say, well, you know, why is uh, uh, why is our governor, you know, sort, sort of uh, speaking out the way he is and sort of talking to uh, the, the particular uh, base that he is? They forget the fact that this isn't so much trying to appease Donald Trump, because I don't think you, that, 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 that Governor Kemp can ever appease Donald Trump. He, he takes politics extremely personally, and anybody who ever crosses him – you know, becomes his enemy regardless of what hap- what 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 else they may agree with politically. What the, what the governor is facing, however, is that his base and President Trump's base are the same in this state. Uh, his base, uh, when he ran for governor and when he got elected governor, uh, both in the primary and the general election, was more of the small town rural base. That's where he ran up the score. He did okay in the suburbs. Uh, and everything else, but he really ran up the score score in those in those other areas and and got that those very high percentages. That's the same base that that President Trump had, and so a lot of this is simply trying to make sure that he 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 comes home to his base and then tries to build from there. But to also to 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 sort of sort of pick up on some of the other points here, I think it needs to be remembered as we move from uh, into more of a purple category, and this is something that Caesar and I and other what I would call governing uh, uh, politicos uh, need to need to try to do is, is get folks running for office who want to govern and not simply uh, want to want to get engaged in the rhetoric that you find on the extremes on both sides. Uh, that's been actually one of the things to build on what Patricia said a moment ago that states like Georgia have done even while Congress has become totally dysfunctional is that we have continued to govern in large part because we've had Republicans and Democrats be, being willing to work together. Uh, the legendary uh, connection between our former city uh, of Atlanta mayor and Governor Deal and, and other Republican and Democrats in the General Assembly have, have been able to work together even while they went out and, and ran against each other every two years. We've got to make sure here in Georgia that we continue to put to support people who want to go into office and regardless of your party, want to govern. And that's going to be the real challenge that we have going forward, as we do, as Caesar mentioned a little while ago, moving more toward a competitive purple state. We were able to do that when we went from a blue state uh, under Democratic control to a red state. And the question is, can we continue that process into the future, or will we find ourselves balkanized like, uh, like Congress has become? Hey, Caesar, uh, I mentioned that there's pressure on the other side of this as well. We know that a number of Georgia faith leaders, uh, led by Bishop Reginald uh, Jackson, who is the prelate of the 6th Episcopal District of the AME uh, Church here, uh, he has Georgia among other states, 
he had a summit uh, last week, uh, which was led by Coca-Cola CEO uh, and and other business leaders, saying to them they have to act, urging them to act collectively to do more to oppose laws like this law in Georgia, um, and and presumably at the same time to go out of their way to support as uh, strongly as they can the the law that right now sits in the Senate. Uh, the for the so-called for the people act which would give the fed some control over how states uh, uh, run their elections yeah I, you know i think that you know the this is an incredible squeeze play that benefits democrats candidly uh, you know as, as you know democrats are looking at this entire scenario and saying you know this is is in some ways uh, a result of you know the big orange elephant in the room. Uh, and this is just something that is not just a problem for Governor Kemp, it's a problem for many in the Republican Party in Georgia. And that is, on the one hand, you know, Democrats, or at least I see much of what we uh, uh, witnessed in the state legislature related to this voting law as a response to, and maybe even an attempt to kowtow to uh, what is perceived as uh, former President Trump's control over the Republican base in Georgia. And that's candidly offensive. And that, but, but at the same time, it's a squeeze play because it, it has given Democrats an opportunity uh, to really hammer on a lot of critical issues uh, and to position quite favorably uh, for the 2022 election and to position quite favorably as it relates to some of the voting uh, uh, laws that are being proposed uh, in Congress. Uh, so I, I think, you know, as, as I have said, I think this in many ways for Democrats, if, if handled properly, would be a gift that just continues to, to give. Uh, you know, it's, it, 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 it's, it's, in my opinion, a, a signal uh, that, uh, that there's a lot of trouble uh, existing candidly in terms of the Republican Party and its leadership and also potential trouble uh, to come. Uh, because as, as looking from the outside in, as a Democrat into the Republican Party, it looks as if, uh, you know, there's a lot of discord. I was chatting with a Republican friend of mine. And I said, hey, I said, I'm, it looks like you all are in a serious fight. And that fight, that family fight is spilled out into the front lawn of your house. Uh, and I said, but I'm sure you all will get it all together and get back in the house once uh, you, you kind of come to your senses. And this person said to me, I don't think that's going to happen. So it's going to be really interesting to see how the Republican Party manages this this, this continuing influence of, of Donald Trump uh, as it relates to who wins and who is able to speak to the Republican base in Georgia. Patricia, before I get to a break, let me give you the final word in this segment on, on what you're hearing. So um, I think we need to see where the bulk of the GOP base is going to be. We know the activists are still extremely angry with Kemp, and so much of that is being driven by Donald Trump. And, you know, I think the two giant factors in 2022 are going to be what does Donald Trump do and what does Stacey Abrams do? Um, we expect her to get into this race. That is going to put these voting rights issues front and center. I don't think Donald Trump can resist the temptation to get himself involved in, in the race between those two as well. So there are a lot of wild cards out there. And I think this is just the, a continuation of 2018, 2020 and a precursor to 2022. It's crazy the way politics is dominate, continuing to dominate the landscape. The next thing you know, we're going to have to expand Political Rewind to seven days a week. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no. Please, nobody take me seriously. We'll be back in a moment. Maria Saporta, uh, you pointed uh, out a piece that Jeffrey Sonnenfeld uh, who used to be at Emory, of course, uh, a business professor at Emory, and now he's at the Yale School of Management. He's the associate dean there. And he wrote a piece, uh, I think, for the Wall Street Journal, and, and I also uh, saw it quoted in Politico. We could put up a post, uh, we could put a link to that Politico piece up, which is free for everybody. And, and basically, Sonnenfeld says 
that this split is over a lot more between Republicans and business than just voting rights. They're just moving business and the Republicans in different directions culturally. Yeah, and I also think he is prompting these companies to become much more active in the space. And uh, he convened a summit, uh, a virtual summit, of uh, more than 100 business leaders a, a week ago Saturday, and or no, this past Saturday. And, uh, you know, they actually committed to saying, hey, we're going to be uh, judicious in who we give our ca- our campaign dollars to. We do not want to be supporting candidates that are against voting rights or against policies that we feel are contrary to uh, our core beliefs and our core policies. So, okay. I, there's another thing, too, that I just wanted to throw out, and that is that what we have seen in 2020 with George Floyd and, and uh, the awakening of racial issues is companies have really uh, decided to to diversify their workforce, their top management, and that is leading a lot of companies to look to Georgia. Uh, technology companies are making major investments uh, and planning major investments in Atlanta area particularly. Why? Because of the workforce that we have. It is a one-stop shop to where you can diversify, increase your African-American population uh, in your workforce and really become um, more relevant to society. Um, Thank you for that. Uh, I want to, with the time we have remaining, turn to another subject. Um, Georgia, just in this past week, last few days, lost two men who were giants in many ways in uh, Georgia in terms of the work they did in their various areas of expertise. And they're, they're men who are definitely worth our taking a few minutes to talk about. Um, One of them, uh, Patricia Hank Huckabee, who uh, was chancellor of the University System of Georgia uh, after a a career in education, but also was an expert on budget matters and helped as a budget uh, officer in two administrations, helped lead the state through two very, very difficult economic times. Um, he was he was a member of the state legislature for just one term, but he has always been considered a giant force uh, in in the political world here. And I have to say, just personally, I also thought Hank Huckabee was just a wonderful guy to know. Patricia and Maria, Maria, you too probably knew, knew Hank well. Patricia, you want to say something? Oh, I'll just say quickly, I'll let others speak. Um, He's such a great example of somebody who was not the governor or played such a huge role in the state's um, leadership and governance and really the state that we all enjoy today. It requires so many hands behind it instead of just the ones that we read about every single day. And he's a great example of that. Maria? Yeah, I would second that. Uh, He belongs to a class of what I call real public servants, people who were in it for the right reasons, who wanted to see good policy. My last interview with him was when he was uh, leaving as chancellor, and he was talking about how the state really needed to support students who could not afford to go to college. And these were things that he really believed in, and these were policies he really wanted to see enacted in Georgia. Um, Edward and Caesar, you're welcome to weigh in as well, if you if like. Edward? Yeah, I, I served with, with Hank for, for one term. Um, and even though he, he came in and then he shortly thereafter was, was appointed to be the chancellor, he was one of these people that even though I was in leadership, I went to him for input and advice more than I went to him to ask him to do something. Uh, he uh, is one of those individuals I spoke of earlier a governing public servant uh, who understood that at the end of the day, he had a calling to move the state forward in the areas that Maria was discussing, for instance, even in tough economic times. Uh, And these are individuals that, these are the kinds of individuals that Hank uh, personified uh, that are hard to replace, uh, but we must work very hard to do so. Caesar, I'm, you're more than welcome to mention Hank Huckabee, but you also, uh, Leon Eplin, who also died just yesterday, not age 92, 
one of the great city planners in the United States. Um, and he, too, will be remembered for extraordinary accomplishments. So please, as you weigh in, you're welcome to talk about either of them. Absolutely. Well, Hank Huckabee was certainly a household name for those who cared about education. And I come from a family of educators, so he was a name that was well known to me, although I didn't know him that well personally. I had a great deal of respect for his work uh, around the state and the cause of education. And, and certainly my, my thoughts and prayers are with the Eflin family um, uh, on the passing of Mr. Eflin. Uh, you know, I, I, I actually... Uh, of course, knew of him uh, through his daughter, Leeds, when she and I served on the board of Hands on Atlanta together. But it wasn't until <clears throat> I joined the Atlanta City Council that I gained a greater understanding of the incredible impact uh, that, he had, that he had on the city uh, from an administrative perspective, but also from a visioning perspective and a civic perspective. And so he will be sorely, sorely missed, and uh, certainly he has left a tremendous legacy uh, here in the city of Atlanta. Yeah, uh, Maria, I talk about a visionary, Leon Eplin, in the way he thought about city planning, not just in Atlanta, but in other cities around the country. He wanted uh, cities that were more walkable. He wanted fr- he wanted cities that encouraged people uh, to uh, interact with one another. And he played a huge role in what was an enormous controversy back in the early 90s over building that expressway from downtown out to the Carter Center. It was Leon Eplin who came in and helped negotiate a settlement that gave a parkway uh, to the area but avoided this notion of a big expressway out there. Actually, since this is called Political Rewind, you can rewind it to the 70s. And uh, when Maynard Jackson became mayor, uh, he ran on a campaign against the Stone Mountain Tollway, which was the highway that later became the uh, Freedom Parkway. And he and Maynard brought in uh, Leon Eplin to actually give much more power to the neighborhoods to decide what their future is going to be than to have decisions be made um, by you know federal government or uh, business leaders. I'm glad you said that. That's right. That was one of his great creations, Patricia, the Neighborhood Planning Unit, the NPU, which has had a, a, a crucial impact on development in, in neighborhoods of the city ever since. And, and it's certainly one of the reasons that those in-town neighborhoods have been able to be preserved and brought along and now seeing this incredible revitalization is because they did have a say in what their future would be. And I think they really learned from the mistakes um, in some cases in New York City that just plowed entire neighborhoods under uh, to make way for roads and, and really lost so much of the character and the process. So for all that Atlanta is missing and the old, you know, old, beautiful homes uh, that aren't here, the, it's those in-town neighborhoods that he was able to really preserve um, by giving them the voice. He didn't preserve them, but he gave them the voice to determine their own future, and, and that made the big difference. Patricia Murphy, thank you for that. Uh, thank you for being here, Patricia, Edward Lindsay, Cesar Mitchell, Maria Supporta. What a pleasure to have you on for the first time on the show. We're uh, we're gone today. We'll be back again on Monday with another Political Rewind. Hope you all have a great weekend. Uh, in the meantime, take care. Stay healthy. I know you're going to wear your masks. You're going to get a vaccine. If it's a, By the way, put the mask above your nose. Do I have to remind you of that? And as long as we mentioned it at the top of the show, if you're going to get a vaccine, also think about that uh, colorectal screening that's so important to people over 50 years old. We'll see you all on Monday morning. Take care.